Thanks, Rolf. It's just great. Isn't that wonderful for a Mother's Day in particular? I just thought it doesn't get much better than that uh, as a text. And it's so clear what it means for us today. I almost feel like I don't need to say anything. Oh, gosh, when I heard that read out loud at nine o'clock, and I thought, wow, what a text. Like the force, the rhetorical, it's pretty huge, isn't it? Particularly with that translation, meaningless, meaningless, you go, oh, wow, so what's the point? Let's just slit our wrists and go home, or go home and then slit our wrists. Um, Let's pray, Lord God, help us to understand this and live this and find the joy and meaning in this. Amen. Um, actually, this text is, is uh, incredibly relevant for today. And I'm going to show you how it gives us the resources to understand ourselves, to understand our culture, and to help people out there in the world actually connect with God. But before we do that, I've got to go back to last week. Uh, our small group is, uh, we have a wonderful small group, uh, lots of, our church, yep, our church is, I don't know, like 80% of our church meet in small groups, and, and we're looking, we're, we're tracking along with Ecclesiastes, and our small group started with someone saying to me, uh, and, and I won't give them a name, Elizabeth, um, saying to me, oh, Mark, you really had your nerd on last week. Uh, the first 10 minutes, I, you know, there wasn't a word under 10 syllables, and we needed a glossary, and um, I cried. I said I needed a safe space. Um, but here's the point. There were some big words last week, and it was a fair call. Let me summarize what, what we looked at last week and set the scene for today. The book of Ecclesiastes is a story that is told by a guy to help young Jewish people in the third century BC to resist the temptation to think that they can understand everything there is to know about the world just by the use of their own reason and their own observation and their own experience, and instead to trust God. There was pressure coming on them from Greek philosophy that said, really, you can know everything there is to know about the world just by studying it yourself. And so the way this story works is it tells the story of, of Kohelet, a Solomon-like kingly figure who pursues that agenda and says, okay, what's it like if I just study the world by myself the way the Greeks say? And we discover, and we discovered last week, that when you do that, you discover that the world is enigmatic, is hevel. That's the Greek word underlying the word that's translated in the Bible we heard today, meaningless. And, uh, and actually, the, another translation is Hevel, of Hevel, is enigmatic. And what, you, what he discovers is when you try and make sense of the world without God, you discover it's a bit like learning maths at high school. I don't know what your experience was like, but the teacher would explain how it worked on the, on the whiteboard, and you'd go, yeah, I get that. And then you'd have to go and do it yourself, and you'd go, ah, no, I didn't really get that. Yeah, it's, it's kind of enigmatic. I, I thought I had it, but I don't. So he says, without God, that's the way the world is. So um, that, is, that was the first 10 minutes of last week in understandable language, I hope. This week, what we are taken on is this amazing journey that the teacher, that Kohelet, goes on where he says this. He says, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. 
Now, uh, what he's going to do is he's going to go on a journey. And again, in the story, he's a Solomon-like figure, and he does it very successfully. He's going to test pleasure and the good life. So what is, uh, here for your glossary, what is the technical word that is used for the philosophy that says the real meaning of life is to be found in pleasure? What was it? Hedonism. Hedonism. That's exactly right. Now, there's two forms of hedonism. Uh, the philosophers tell us there's egoistic and altruistic. Egoistic hedonism says it's all about my pleasure. The ultimate good is what is good for me. Altruistic hedonism, it says it's all about the greatest good for the greatest uh, number. Uh, the, the, the philosophical word for that is utilitarianism. You maximize the utility for everybody. Uh, so hedonism is the pursuit of pleasure, and the, particularly the pursuit of meaning and purpose uh, and significance through pleasure, right? So what Kohelet does in this story is he sets out to do that. And here's the thing. Uh, he does it in a very sophisticated and very successful way. That's the point of the story. He's more sophisticated and more successful at this journey than your average Joe, than you or I would be. Look at what he does. He says, uh, he says what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. So he tries uh, changing his brain chemistry through alcohol. That's uh, not an uncommon strategy today, is it? Um, uh, and then he uh, wants to see what's good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. It's, it's just so, quick. so what he did then was he undertook great projects. He was a builder. He did amazing stuff. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs uh, to water groves of flourishing trees. Now, let me tell you something really interesting that I discovered that I didn't know about this little text. It's a very interesting Hebrew scholar who makes the point from these two verses that what uh, Kohelet is doing is actually rebuilding Eden, the Garden of Eden. So uh, the Garden of Eden, when you read the story of Genesis 1 and 2, uh, it's the world outside Eden is chaos and, uh, and tohu vavohu, formless and void, and Eden is pictured as a Babylonian uh, walled garden. So very common in Babylon, uh, at the time, that, you, that rich people uh, created beautiful enclosures, walled gardens that were luxurious and verdant and safe and full of everything good, right? Actually, even today, uh, gardens are a sign of prosperity, aren't they? I mean, you can tell how rich a country is by how much money it spends on lawn care. Um, uh, you know, in the Sudan, not a lot of people have beautiful green lawns and gardens, whereas in other rich parts we do. Same back then. So you had these walled gardens of beauty and delight. And of course, human beings in the story of Genesis stuffed all that up and were banished from the garden and had to go out. And the plan always was, God's plan 
was to take the blessings of the garden and sort of Edenize the whole world, extend the blessings of Eden to the whole world. So the whole world functioned like a beautiful Babylonian garden. Uh, And in this story, this scholar says, very interesting, the words that are used are the same. That Kohelet does in the world what Adam and Eve were meant to do. He's Edenizing the world. It's amazing. It's extraordinary what he's doing, and he's very successful at it. He's like this, uh, he's bringing beauty and creating great things. Uh, And then uh, in another sign of wealth, which, you know, was common in the culture, but obviously massively problematic, I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. Long-term slaves, uh, just great wealth. And he also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. He's the man. He is very, 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 very wealthy. I amass silver and gold for myself, the treasure of kings and provinces. Um, he's, he's got it all. He is seriously rich. This is like the point one of the point one of the point one percent before it became popular to think about the world in those categories. Um, uh, and this, I acquired male and female singers. So he, he loved music. This is, it's not, a, it's not a debauched life he's living. It's a successful, sophisticated uh, life of pushing the boundaries of everything that's good and beautiful and pleasurable. Music, buildings, art, culture, sex. And I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. And in all this, my wisdom stayed with me. So he's wise as well, like he's got it all. Right? Just like Solomon. He has it all. And then look at verse 10. And is this not the perfect description both of his life but also of our culture? And this, is, this was his strategy. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. Doesn't that describe us? It's not just Kohelet's strategy. It's not just a third century strategy. This is, I can't think of a truer description of, uh, of the stance of people in Sydney today. We're hedonists. Some of us are successful and sophisticated. Others of us make a complete mess of it and end up addicted and messed up because of it. But that's what drives us. I deny myself nothing my eyes desire. We see something we want it, we get it. The, 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 and I'll give you an example of this. The greatest harm we can inflict on somebody is saying to them that if they really want something, they can't have it. <laughs> Isn't that right? Yeah, you can't have that. No, I can. I want that. Well, I'll, I'll tell you, you know, why one of the reasons our society is so messed up is we don't even let our lack of money get in the way of getting what we desire. (laughs) That's why credit cards were invented. I see this thing, I want it, oh, I don't have the money, that's okay, my future self can pay for it, my current self doesn't have it, but I'm gonna borrow from my future self because I want this now and I can't, I couldn't possibly say no to anything that I desire. I'm driven by pleasure. Isn't that us? Now, um, I mentioned this in the email update I sent out. One of the things I learned this week as I was researching this and studying, um, 
wasn't entirely new to me, but it just reinforced it very clearly. I wonder, it was, was the way there, this indicates an, a, a very important shift uh, that we need to understand in uh, our worldview, or our worldviews. So a worldview, or if I really want to nerd up in the German, it's a Weltanschauung. A Weltanschauung is a worldview, a set of glasses through which I see everything and make sense of the world. And uh, in various different cultures, over time and through time, uh, have developed different ways of understanding the world. So uh, one way to understand the world is uh, that it's all about getting power and uh, overcoming fear, right? So the world is full of demons and terrible things, and it's all miserable and awful. And, and, and the goal in life is to acquire power so you can overcome all the difficult, dangerous things in the world, right? Uh, another way that cultures have developed uh, of seeing, of living in the world, is honor and shame. So the way to get the good life, to find meaning in life, is to avoid the shame and live a life of honor, well, he says, it's very common, right? What really matters in life is your honor uh, and, and to avoid shame coming upon you. So um, oh, there's lots and lots of examples. Uh, in Viking culture, in Viking culture, it didn't matter what happened to you as long as you died honorably in battle and then you could go to Valhalla, right? In, uh, in many, um, gosh, Cosa Nostra, Southern Italian, Sicilian culture, what matters is the honor of the family. So you get generations of vendettas as you, as you, uh, you know, someone was insulted and so you kill them and then they kill you and so you go on for generations, right? Honor and shame, very significant. Uh, in our culture historically, probably for the last 400 years, we had a slightly, we had a different way of seeing the world and we lived in an innocence or guilt culture. So what mattered for us was living lives that were guilt-free, that we did what was right, okay? Now, all cultures and every person, we all want, and, and it's good, we want power, we want honor, and we want innocence, but different, but through different cultures, have, they, they come in different, each one of these comes into sort of dominant perspective. And you can see that in the church in the way we understand God. So for the last few hundred years, the dominant metaphors in the church to understand Christianity have all about, been about innocence and guilt. The heart of this, the key selling point of Christianity is to get rid of your guilt and find innocence through uh, substitutionary atonement, through the death of Jesus. He wipes away your guilt. However, in other cultures, what really matters is honor, <laughs> Uh, honor and shame, and so other cultures present Jesus in these terms, in terms of, uh, you know, Jesus being dishonored, the Father being dishonored, and God and Jesus being raised to, the, to, to um, at the right hand of the Father, receiving all honor and glory, and therefore his followers, who are deeply dishonored in the world, they too will be raised with the Son. And so the whole of the book of Hebrews, for example, can be read as a wonderful exposition of honor and shame, uh, and the way Jesus addresses these culturally. Um, and obviously power and fear, freedom from Satan, freedom from oppression, freedom from uh, all the demonic forces in the world that come to us through the powerful uh, person of Jesus. Uh, this missiologist that I read said, actually, and I think this fits in so beautifully with Ecclesiastes, says there's been a shift in our culture in the last 50 years. And so now 
what drives us is not innocence or guilt or honor or shame or power or fear. What is it? Pleasure and pain. We want, we want to avoid pain, discomfort, hardship, and we want pleasure, the good life. That's it, right? That is how, that is the framework, the lens within which we see the world. And, and another way of putting it is, this is how we judge who a good person is. So who is a good person? Well, it's someone who has power. Who is a good person? Someone with honor. Who is a good person? Someone with innocence. Who is a good person? Someone who uh, is fulfilled, who, fl who flourishes as a person, right? Has a life of pleasure and affluence. Isn't that interesting? You can think about this, right? It's very significant. How do we, how do we ch make decisions about life and what we do, how we spend our money, how we spend our lives? Well, our culture now says it's all about our own fulfillment. What else is the euthanasia debate except this? When is life worth living? When it's fulfilling. When your pleasure outweighs your pain. When is life not worth living? Well, when there is, you know, there is no pleasure. There's no fulfillment left. It used to be that we talked and, and philosophers or moral educators would talk about the fact that we all have a little inner lawyer within us who will, when we're thinking about things, will, will judge, judge us for, is this right or wrong? Will you get caught or won't you? We don't have an inner lawyer inside of us anymore. What do we have inside of us? An inner therapist. If you, if you evaluate a course of action, on what basis are you going to evaluate it? Well, your inner therapist will say to you, will this make you happy? Will this make you fulfilled? Will this help you flourish as a person? I, I talk to people uh, in some of the pastoral work I do um, about their marriages. This is the framework that we bring to bear on our marriages so often in our culture, isn't it? Well, marriage is about helping me flourish and making me happy, and I just can't, it's not working for me anymore. I've had someone say, it's not working for me anymore, I'm not happy anymore, and I can't keep at this. I mean, in other generations, you go, the, the dishonor of divorce would be so great, you would never contemplate leaving your marriage because of the shame. Now we wouldn't contemplate culturally staying in a marriage that, that wasn't making us happy. And I understand that. And I'm not saying it's good to stay in a marriage that it makes you miserable for sure. But you see how powerful that framework is? And it's Mother's Day, so um, I have this discussion sometimes with people who want to have kids because they think it'll make them happy. I'm like, are you kidding me? <laughs> like a, a little, oh, babies are so cute. I say, that baby is a teenager in waiting. <laughs> it really is. And so it can't, your, your reproductive choices can't be governed fundamentally by your own pursuit of self-fulfillment. <laughs> Though it often is. And it doesn't work. And then you're confused <laughs> when you discover, wow, it's actually really, really hard. Really hard. Actually, in that is the beauty of kids, is they're God's gift to us to beat the selfishness out of us, actually. So Ecclesiastes for today and for us says this. What in a world where we pursue pleasure as the, the path to life, 
what do we discover? And, he, and, and, and Kohelet is more successful than any of us at this. And what does he discover? Well, verse 11, he says, I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, and guess what? Everything was enigmatic, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Wow. If that's his judgment over his life, what judgment would we make over our lives if we live for pleasure? Because we're not nearly as successful as him. He's not just satisfied to describe this. What Kohelet then does is in the next few verses, chapter, verses 12 through to uh, 23, he starts to ask the question, well, why? Why is it that this pursuit of the good life doesn't work? Why is it that great success and achievements don't really deliver life for us? And uh, what's the answer? Verse 14, I came to realize what? The wise, the foolish, the successful, the failure. What, what, why doesn't pursuing life through pleasure really work? What's the thing that gets in the way of it? Death. This is it, right? So here's why, here's why it's enigmatic. Because you can build your great buildings, you can do incredibly well at life. You can be, um, you know, you can be a well-loved CEO of Woolworths and then retire and die at age 66, right? Just like that, bang, happened a couple weeks ago. Death, it's the same fate for everyone. No matter how great you are, you end up in the same place. And he said, this, this is a problem, this makes life enigmatic. It means I can't understand it. I can't figure out if death is the end point for all of us, how do I make sense of all of this? How do I live well with all of this? What's, what's the point at one level of getting out of bed any morning? Why go to work? Why bother? Why love? Why, why make music? Why build great buildings? Why care about justice? It doesn't make any sense, really, does it? If this is all there is, because it's all just going to end up as nothing. <laughs> going to die. And it gets worse than that. One of the problems with death is that, that you leave all the benefits of your work to some other turkey, right? So this is what he says, I hated life. Because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it's enigmatic. I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. You build a great life and you leave it to some turkey who's not worthy, who hasn't had to work, who hasn't strived, who might make a complete wreck of it. I was thinking about this today. Funnily enough, I was standing in the shower and I was like, as I was saying, I really, I, we should think about our wills in the light of this, I was thinking to myself. And I was like, well, so if, I, if Margot and I died and the kids died, such assets as we have, which aren't great, who would we leave them to? 
So oh, should we leave them to Darling Street? Don't get any ideas. Wardens, balance the budget, no, no. Um, but then I thought to myself, why would I leave it to Darling Street? There's some other turkey going to come along and, and she's going to wreck it because we'll have women ordained in Sydney by that time, right? Sure. Yeah, if you believe that, I've got a bridge that I could sell you uh, just across the road. Um, so who's going to, you wreck it, so how do I, how do I know? Um, you see this with people. What, what do we do? Leave it to your kids. They might be okay, but their kids will wreck it all. You know, the first, the first generation makes the money, the second consolidates it, the third loses it. That's what happens. So what do we do with it? And it's terrible. So no one, they're going to leave, everybody leaves everything behind. If, if death is the finish line of life, What's the point of running the race? Why? Why go hard just to get to the same point? Hey? Huh. Well, aren't you glad you came to church? <laughs> like, whew, what a Mother's Day talk this is, right? Well, verse 24, uh, the, the whole tenor of the changes, right? Um, just do all their days, their work is grief and pain. Even at night, their minds don't rest. I just have to mention this because I think this is perfect. Why do we have an, uh, we have a, a, we live in an anxious culture because the reality of death creates this background hum of anxiety. Okay, so here's how it works. You work, you play, you invest yourself in all of these things and it's all good, but at night... When everything's quiet, you lie in bed and you hear, mm, and what is that? That's mm, your mortality. Mm, that's death coming towards you. And it's just as, mm, and what happens to your adrenaline levels? Mm, and you can't sleep and you're anxious because you know you're going to cock it. It's there for all of us, eh? So we get up and we work, 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 but it's there and it gets louder and it gets louder if we're honest. So, uh, verse 24, a person can do nothing better than to uh, eat and drink and work. This too is from the hand of God. And if you do that, with God, you're going to eat and find enjoyment. You're going to find pleasure. It's going to be great. And what's even better to the person who pleases him, God is going to give wisdom, knowledge, and what? Happiness. Hang on, hang on. We've had uh, 23 verses of happiness doesn't work. And then... Oh, hang on. It does. God's going to make you happy. He's going to give you pleasure. Huh? That's a little weird right there, isn't it? It's called, in literary theory, a contradictory juxtaposition. So what you've got is like you're, you're going along on your story in this way, pleasure doesn't work, and then it's like you've got a learner driver learning a stick shift, you're doing 60 k's an hour, and they try and crunch the car into reverse. And it comes to a, ah, now you're thrown and you're going backwards. 
That's what's happened. That's the, that's the level of change here. And it's profound. But, and, and so, so what's going on? Well, actually, it's a very, very, very cleverly told story to, for that contradictory juxtaposition to cause us to go, huh? How do you resolve that? You live your life by yourself. Everything's enigmatic. Pleasure doesn't work. You live your life with God. And guess what? It's going to be great. Because, note this, in the first 23 verses, God is absent. Suddenly, verse 24, 25, 26, all this comes from the hand of God. And then God is the one who is giving us wisdom, right? And then God is the one who actually judges as well. (laughs) It's saying, actually, you know what? Life's pretty good. Eating, drinking, working, these things are a cause of great enjoyment that come from God. That's fantastic, isn't it? The question is, how do you, how do you, how do you just, how do you, how do you get from the one bit of the story to the second bit? Have you ever thought about that? Because this is it, right? Like, how do you live in those two places? Uh, there are actually, through the book of Ecclesiastes, there are five of these passages. They're called the carpe deum passages, where it's like, life doesn't work, but seize the day. Life doesn't work, but it's great. Just grab hold of it. It suck the marrow out of life. Life doesn't work. It's going to be fantastic. Just trust God. It'll be awesome. So what do you do? What do you do this Mother's Day? What do you do with your life? Uh, How do you find uh, a way to find enjoyment, pleasure? Uh, What are you going to do with your work on Monday? How are you going to find it meaningful and purposeful? Good. Well, Kohelet, all his answer is just trust God. He doesn't tell us how trusting God will actually resolve this tension, but he sets the tension up to make us feel it because he doesn't know the end of the story. How's the tension resolved? How do we find a way of living in the world where we find pleasure and enjoyment? Well, if death is the problem, what's the solution? Death is the problem. What's the solution? Jesus, yes, thank you. Let's narrow it down a bit. What particular thing about Jesus is the answer, is the solution? Let's pretend it's not a rhetorical question and that I don't have supernaturally good hearing. Eternal life, life, what's another word for that? Resurrection. Yes. This is it, right? How do we join those two bits together? Well, it's through the, the, through the resurrection. How, how is Eden really regained and rebuilt? Not through our efforts, but through the resurrection of Israel's Messiah, Jesus. Through the second Adam, Jesus. Through our representative human, in whom you and I will have resurrection one day, according to Scripture, if we follow Him, right? The doctrine of the resurrection the hope of the resurrection, the promise of the resurrection is the way in which these two strands are resolved. 
because now I can see that life without God and even sometimes life with God is enigmatic and problematic and everything gets left behind. But actually when I look, can I see that actually in Jesus Christ, it's not all left behind. In Jesus Christ, everything that I do here in Him goes on and death is not the end. Death is not the end. It's resurrection that actually the the vision of the future that we have, that is we draw that into the present and that is what infuses our daily living with joy and with pleasure and with meaning and with purpose because we know it's not the end, it's just the beginning. And we know there is hope. So the Apostle Paul uh, writes this in 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, talking in this great chapter at the end of the book of Corinthians. He's talking about uh, uh, the resurrection. And he says, Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? That's what Jesus' resurrection has done for you and for me. It's defeated death. So if death is defeated, then the enigma of life is resolved. And Paul says, the last verse in 1 Corinthians 15, which is a game changer, he says this, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work, the toil of the Lord. Why? Because you know that your toil is not in vain. Everything we do, it's not in vain. Why? Why? of the resurrection of Jesus. That's it. When you go to work tomorrow, the work you do there is not in vain when you do it with Jesus. The meal you're going to eat today after church and the the wine you're going to drink, it's going to be good. Well, not in my house because Ma goes away and I'm providing it so it'll be very basic. But in your house, it'll be great. Why? Because eating and drinking and pleasure is not in vain because Jesus rose from the dead. The God who turned water into wine, who came to bring joy to the world, this God is going to raise you and I up so that we will live lives of joy forever. Isn't it interesting? And in fact, we're called in the basis of this to live lives that bring pleasure to God. He finds pleasure in our pleasure as we find joy because of the resurrection. Why, why stick at a marriage that is hard? Apart from the fact that there is no other marriage. <laughs> Every marriage is hard. It's also good and wonderful. Why stick at it? Because your work and your marriage is not in vain. Because the love you build and the way you work and love each other, this will go on. Death won't end it. That's amazing. For those of you who've lost partners... Death's not, it's, there, there, there is a resurrection and a reuniting coming, right? It's amazing. Why, why, why parent your kids when death's just going to take both of you, all of you? Because it won't. Because it won't. That the work we do of parenting our kids won't end because of the resurrection. Amazing. There's this extraordinary verse, and it's a slightly enigmatic verse. 
um, at the end of the book of Revelation, right at the end of the Bible, it says this. It says that uh, talking about the new heavens and the new earth, and it says the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it and the glory and the honor of the nations will be brought into it. I think it says that saying that the stuff we do here is going to have an ongoing existence being brought into the new heavens and the new earth, into the new kingdom of God. It's amazing. The glory of what you and I do with our lives won't be ended by death. Interrupted by death, not ended by death, but actually brought into the kingdom of God forever. Isn't that amazing? So, in a world where we live for pleasure, we have the answer to lasting pleasure. (laughs) We can go to our culture and we can say, you know, everything you're looking to try and get through your bigger houses and your bigger, more money and your great relationships and your therapy, all of this that you're trying to get and that you know doesn't really satisfy, we have for you. We have the answer in Jesus Christ and his resurrection. The other thing that happened to me on Friday night was just having dinner with some friends from Sydney down at a Thai restaurant down the road here. And, uh, uh, and on the table uh, next to us was this couple who, over the course of some funny events in the restaurant, we got talking to. And, uh, and we had this wonderful, probably talked after dinner for like 45 minutes. And it turns out that he, uh, he's a, they're a beautiful couple. They've just moved into the area. Um, he's Jewish. And she's his third wife, and she's Italian, and she's a very beautiful, loud Italian woman. And he's a very wealthy Jewish businessman. They've just downsized from their massive house in Bellevue Hill, and they've moved into a waterfront apartment in Belmain. And, uh, and here they are, and, he and, and we get talking. And we're like, I'm like, we're the lost Jews of Belmain. This is just awesome. And we talked and unpacked his life and his story. And my friends and his wife were chatting. And he and I were just like two Jews going at it, telling the story of our lives and Holocaust, refugees surviving. And I just said to him, you need to... And he he actually said to me, he said, so so Mark, tell me, how can you be... How can you reconcile being Christian and Jewish? And then he said, what do you do for for work? And I said, actually, I'm the Anglican minister. He said, tell me how that works. That must be crazy. So I said, well, no, because you know what? When you discover Jesus as your Messiah, you will find everything that you've been looking for and you and, and in all your success and all your wealth and all your power, you'll find it there. So come to church. Come, you'll find great friends. They'll be awesome. They'll be wonderful. Why don't you come? And he's like, oh, that'd be great. And his wife's like, this will be awesome. Takes my number and we're gonna keep going. And I go, that's it. That's the hope for him. He's got, and listening to him talk, it was like talking to him. He's got a 97-year-old mum. Polish Jew, survived the war, uh, just like my mom. And, she, and, and he goes to visit her over in the home in Randwick, and she's like, I just want to throw myself off the balcony. I'm so miserable. There's nothing to live for. I said, that was my mom. I said, no, but, but, but she needs Messiah, eat Jesus. Because you don't want to get to the end of your life with all these achievements and all this wealth and everything that they've managed to do as these refugees who've succeeded, and you don't want to be there as a 97-year-old wanting to throw yourself off the balcony because there's nothing left for you. The, the resurrection changes all of that. 
And I can't wait for him and his wife to come to church and for them to find the resurrection of Messiah Jesus because without that, there really isn't much, even though they have so much more than I'll ever have at a material level and probably so much more than most of us have. But we've got the resurrection. So we have everything. Isn't that amazing? That's... I know I'm going to see my little 85-year-old Jewish mum who died with dementia. I know I'm going to see her again because she died in Christ. It's coming. Isn't that great? Isn't it great? The resurrection changes everything.